name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. An off-Broadway musical, it's been around quite a long time now, uh, depicted marriage in its title. I love you, you're perfect, now change. If I hadn't been willing or able to change about 15 years ago, Tammy would have never married me in the first place. And I would not be here telling you what a fortunate man I am. And if I were to tell you how I changed, we'd be here all afternoon. Fortunate, yes, but fortune and happenstance had only a little something to do with it. It took recognizing something good and a willingness to change, to adapt myself to that goodness. How about you? When did you willingly change for the better to have and to hold something or someone better? Imagine what life might have looked like had you not changed. Imagine what your life might look like if you don't change now. To be human is to change. To live is to change. Repent and live, cries God through his prophet Ezekiel. And God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. This is a relentlessly positive message. Although it might seem negative, but God is saying, I am for you. But if you don't change, if you don't repent, you die. So please repent. It's like a doctor saying to a patient, please, if you don't change your habits, you'll be dead. It's that stark. To repent is to change. To repent is to choose life over death. In today's parable, it's a short one, but there's a lot in there. One, uh, when asked by his father to work in the field, um, the one son initially says no. Um, this was a massive no in, in a culture which values honor. The son was shaming the father publicly. It was blatant disrespect. The other son initially says yes, he is the good son, reminiscent of the elder son and the prodigal son story. Because, again, in that culture, the one who says yes, even if he doesn't do it, has at least not shamed his father. He meant to obey his father. He just didn't carry through. It's a thought that counts, right? Well, not so much. Jesus' parable disrupts this honor culture. After telling the parable, he doesn't ask who honors his father. Instead, he asks who did the will of his father, to which... The listeners had to grudgingly answer the first, the rebellious one. Apparently, it's not the thought that counts. It's the action. It's the behavior. It's our actions which most accurately reflect our deepest beliefs. You can only find out what you actually believe rather than what you think you believe by watching how you act or by letting someone else watch you and tell you how you're acting. To be religious, to practice true religion, is to change our behavior, which reflects our deepest beliefs. We can be orthodox in our beliefs and wretched in our behavior. We can believe correctly and treat others with contempt. And our texts for today are directed at people, religious in belief and not in their behavior, who refuse to change as God implores them to change. What's interesting about this parable is that the son who says no 
He never says yes. At least it's not written there. He, he does his yes because something shifted in him. An internal work which resulted in external work. And it's God who wills and, who, who, who wills and does and helps us do that work, right, as it says in, uh, in, our, in, our, in Philippians. Um, this son shows his repentance, and the son who says yes never says no. He simply never does his yes. He does nothing. Why? Because nothing happened in him. He doesn't respent, repent, not because he doesn't need to, but because he never sees the need to change. He lives a static life. Jesus is directing this parable to the religiously orthodox, who say yes, but do nothing. They are the chosen and frozen, moral and moralistic, perfect as a snow crystal, and about as cold. The irony is that God calls these righteous ones to a complete conversion and a truly righteous life. But their blind spot, their blind spot is as big as the entire system which perpetuates their religion. It's so big they don't see it. It's systemic. And this is what the prophet Ezekiel is going after, the generational system which absolves personal responsibility and culpability. So Ezekiel, under God's instruction, he banishes the parable. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. That's such a poignant, pungent parable, isn't it? Or saying, yeah. Um, the people of Judah can't make the previous generation the excuse for their own lifestyle. The responsibility for their current sin can't be passed up to the father much as they'd like to. The child is now responsible for his or her own sin of unfaithfulness to God and oppression of others. Because that's how it's always translated. When you're unfaithful to God, guess what? You will oppress others. The fear of God, on the other hand, helps us to take care of others because we're fearless in the fear of God, of what man can do to us. We act with courage. We act with compassion. Get yourself a new mind, a new spirit, Ezekiel says, which will change how you live with God and with others. In the same way, Matthew's Jesus is a fiery prophet who uses parables, and this parable to challenge the abuses of systemic religion. In this case, the people of Judah are trusting in the efficacy of temple worship. That's where Jesus just goes flying through the temple and cleans shop. They're trusting in that while their deeds to one another are rampantly unjust. And this is what Jesus is so angry at. The religious leaders are in the thrall of that system. And Jesus challenges them with this very pointed and specific parable, which identifies individual behavior and responsibility. Which son are you, he asks. And Jesus identifies the first son with the wretched and the rebellious in Jewish society, the isolated and the lonely, the no people, the no-no people, the, 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 the oh-no people, the tax collectors, the harlots. These are the ones who believed. And their behavior followed their beliefs as they followed the one who embraced them. And they poured out their lives for Jesus as he had for them. And what's interesting is how they encounter Jesus one by one, one on one. Even Nicodemus, the Pharisee, how? One on one in the darkness of night. 
because he knew his heart needed changing. And in and, 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 and the most unusual ways, others, Zacchaeus, hiding in the trees, robes flying around him. Jesus calling him out and then calling him in. Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down. I can't wait to get to your house to have dinner with you. I can't wait to talk with you. Can you imagine? No one had said that to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus repents. He changes. He opens his heart, his home, his coffers, and gives half of everything he has and restores fourfold what he had taken. Or how about the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with expensive oil and bathed them in her tears and wiped them with her hair? These are the repentant and extravagant actions, not of passion, but of a woman forgiven and the compassion that pours out of her. To commit to faith is to commit to change. As the heart changes, as Jesus changes our heart, so does our behavior. A no, I won't do it, followed by doing it anyway. You know what that does? That softens the heart. A yes, I will do it, followed by not doing it. That hardens the heart. God is saying, do not harden our hearts. Do not let your yes freeze on your lips because your heart is frozen. And maybe you've experienced, as I have, anger. No anger is toxic as righteous and unrepentant anger. And no love as life-giving as the love of a person who recognizes they have traveled from death to life on the hard road of repentance. Two Sundays ago, Father James preached from the parable of the unforgiving servant who was unwilling to forgive a massive, uh, a small debt as he had been forgiven his massive debt. And what was missing there? It was repentance. The servant had not internalized that forgiveness. He had not repented. Repentance is always forgiveness's counterpart. Repentance changes our behavior because it has first allowed forgiveness to soften our hearts. God's unending mercy, his unending love, his relentless cry for our hearts. Without repentance, though, forgiveness extended will merely harden the heart. Forgiveness is impossible. Father James mentioned that. And so is repentance if God's grace has not penetrated our hearts. Do not harden your hearts. We tend to associate repentance with some terrible and scandalous sin. This parable directs us towards more subtle and gradual creep of hardening of the spiritual arteries as we harbor grudges, as we savor our anger, as we sip on our cynicism like a cocktail, or the complacent shrug of the shoulder, what can I possibly do about it? All of these are hardening agents. And when life is hard, our hearts can become a hardening factory and we feed it these hardening agents. Religion without mercy, without compassion, is one of the most effective hardening agents there is. And true religion, as Ezekiel and Jesus show us, is not always about feeling love and, and feeling loving or nice, right? And, or, or never feeling envy or resentment. Because if that was the case, then who of us could stand? We're constantly feeling like that. Jesus says, I know. I forgive you already. Repent. And it's about the same basic outward expressions of living with God and living community that always hold. Religion tends to bind us to people we like and with whom we are alike, 
and blinds us to people we dislike. That's because a good deal of religious behavior is empathic. Or is it empathetic? Maybe both. Um, and this favors suffering and delighting with people who are like us and refusing to do so with people who are not like us. Studies have shown empathy training engages part of the brain that would be active if you are empathizing with the pain of somebody you already care about. Empathy does not change us. We need it, but it doesn't change us radically. It's biased toward who we like and what we like. It reinforces our behavior. Compassion, on the other hand, activates part of the brain associated with reward and motivation. It's a feeling for and not feeling with the other. And it results in kinder behavior toward the other because you are interested in the other person's well-being regardless of who the person is. Compassion, in other words, changes us. True religion is saying no and doing yes, especially when we don't like it, when we don't like them. It's doing what we don't want to do when God asks us to do it. It's obeying when everything in us is saying, no, I do not want to do this. It's Jesus wrestling in the garden. No, I don't want to, but yes, I will. Wow. And taking that to the cross, the ultimate act of compassionate and joyful obedience for the joy that was set before him, Jesus went to the cross. And you know who is Jesus' joy? We are. We give him joy, especially when we soften our hearts towards one another, towards a stranger. It's changing our minds to have the mind of Christ, says Paul to the Corinthians, which enables us to do, to do the humanly unheard of, the humanly impossible, and the impossibly human, to regard everyone else as more important than ourselves, and to put everyone else's interest above our own. That's impossible, except by the grace of God. But that's how we change. And the change agent is Jesus, the one who changed for us, so he could change us into his likeness. Amen.